Okay, welcome everybody to, I think this is the fourth in the series of the Ruley House Research Seminar Series. And the idea is to get uh, um, members of, of the Department of Continuing Education and colleagues to talk about the, their research, but under the umbrella of a broad theme. So today we're talking about decay, and decay often has a sort of, a, I guess, a negative uh, perspective. So we're interested in how how decay can spark ideas of research and and, uh, and follow through and look at how degeneration can actually be positive or at least be of interest. And this conversation came out actually from lunch with Bob van der Plank, who's one of our speakers today. Um, and I'll tell a little bit more about that, which was, was an interesting lunch where we talked about decay and smiled happily. Um, but Bob van der Plank is the director of the um, Oxford University Language Centre. Uh, he'll be our second speaker. Our third speaker will be Tara Stubb who's recently joined the department uh, as a university lecturer in uh, English Literature and Creative Writing. And starting off uh, in a few minutes will be Martin Newbert, who's a DPhil uh, student in Sustainable Urban Development. So each will be talking about their research, and we're covering the uh, topics, really, or disciplines of um, um, linguistics, if that's correct, applied linguistics? <laughs> Treading on dangerous water here. Applied, applied linguistics. Um, Tara will be talking, uh, looking at cultural studies and, and literature. And uh, Martin is coming from the field of town planning, but we're looking at really urban geography, I'd say, or urban planning. So um, the reason why we came up with the idea of decay was because one lunchtime, Bob and I were talking, and he's, he was interested, not uh, about his research, his interest is, is in lifelong learning, but language learning, but also unlearning. So we talked about how, how out of interest, so the decay or degeneration, or the lack of something can be as much as interest in le leading your research. And so I guess urbanists can say, well, you can chart the development of a city um, as much by what's been disappearing, what's falling down, as what's been uh, built up. So you can look at legacies of uh, absence and presence and tell a, tell a, a good uh, tale and, and good research. Um, but overall, Decay has had a negative press, I think. And, and probably the, one of the, the most pessimistic books you'll ever read is by uh, Emil uh, Chioran. Uh, who's a Romanian philosopher, and in 1949 he wrote a short history of decay, and it's replete with the pessimism. If you're feeling a bit low, don't go near this book. He talks about the process of decay in human society, um, and the opening chapters um, start off directions for decomposition, resources of self-destruction, and the gamut of the void. Um, he talks about chaos and how the world society or human society is really focused around chaos as systems of decay and disorder. Uh, and I think chaos was mentioned as a, as a possible topic in one of the future seminars. So maybe we can go back to Joran at some stage if we, if we get our hopes up or a bit more optimistic. His following book was called The Trouble With Being Born. So I think he's, a, um, he, he's, uh, he's probably one of the great pessimists and, and a renowned pessimist um, in, in terms of his philosophies. A recent book by Neil Ferguson has uh, be called, uh, called the, the Great Degeneration, where again he looks at how institutions decay and economies die. So once again he's looking at the, a state of decay, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, but arguing how the, the trajectories over the 20th century have seen some of the formative elements of state, of governance, law, civil society, or in the process of attrition and decay. Um, but what we're aiming to do is to have a balanced approach to uh, ideas of decay. And, and Yeats, uh, um, in his poem, in poem The Second Coming, uh, famous second line said, or third line, uh, Tara will correct me, said, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. And in some ways you could see that as a very negative poem, an upsetting poem, but it was written at the end of 1919, uh, following the Russian Revolution, the end of World War I, 
Uh, and there's balances there, there's ambiguities about decay. It's, it's, uh, it's the collapse of the present and hope for the future. And I think, uh, I think we'll see in some of the papers today that, that ambiguity about decay and what it tells us about the future, the present as, the present as well as the past. Um, decay also, or degeneration, is, in, is an important driver in other people's research and writing. And a couple of weeks ago, Juno Diaz, who's the Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, a Dominican-American, argued or wrote that one of the driving forces for his own creativity was actually the loss, uh, he called it the bitter and painful loss of his Spanish childhood language as he grew up as a Dominican-American in New Jersey, in the USA. So he's arguing that that loss, that de decay really of his native language, drived him in his political and his creative vision uh, in the last uh, 25 years. So we'll, uh, we've got a mixed bag of what decay means, uh, and we're going to leap now back to the urban areas, uh, particularly to Martin, who will be talking uh, to his research uh, on sustainable urbanism and insularity in the Pacific. Martin also has worked uh, in the Pacific Islands, and today he'll be talking about the, um, the urban riots, or the riots in Tonga, uh, with a title, Kingdom Burns, and, and Anatomy of the 2006 Riots in Tonga. So over to you, Martin, and uh, welcome. Welcome to the stage. Well, thank you very much, David. I don't have a mouse. Let's try that. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me to this seminar. Um, at first glance at the topic, I, I wasn't really sure what to talk about the topic because decay is not very much in the center of my research. Yeah, it's not. Uh, characteristic of urban development in the Pacific or of, of land tenure there. Um, but when thinking of decay as loss, loss of goods, of amenities, loss of trust and coherence, I do think that this event I'm going to introduce you to today uh, will hopefully be a good contribution and a good start for uh, this evening. Um, it's not from the very center of my research, but it was actually the starting point for my research because that's when I got interested in urban development in the region. Okay, um, I'm going to take you on a journey to the Kingdom of Tonga. It's a small island state in the South Pacific, also called the Friendly Islands. In the past years, it hit the news quite regularly through the death of two kings, the coronation of their successors, a major inter-island ferry shipwreck or the birth of a new volcanic island, but you might not have heard of the event I'm going to talk about today, um, which it's actually a storm in a teacup, in a very small teacup, um, but for the people in Tonga, um, this storm was a severe cyclone. We're going to start our journey with a brief chronology until 2006. Um, then I'm going to introduce you to some faces um, before having a look at the riots from two different perspectives. Um, and then looking into the reason and outcomes of that event. I'm trying to highlight where that relates to the topic of our evening. Okay, um, Tonga was settled approximately 3,000 years ago by people by Austronesian people coming from, from Asia. Um, different than its neighbors, the islands of Tonga soon developed as a nation state. In the year 1000, 
um, a royal dynasty was uh, introduced, which lasted for more than 800 years. Um, and around the year 1800, short after the first European arrived in Tonga, a civil war broke out, um, which lasted for more than 50 years. Um, this ended with the establishment of King Taufa Hautoku Taha as the founder of the new royal line in that, in that country. Um, and there began a very long period of stability um, with the introduction of the 1875 constitution as one of the central dates for that. But apart from that, it was a rather boring history in the past 200 years until 2006. Um, this stability was supported by an almost complete religious and cultural homogeneity um, and a succession of benign monarchs. Okay, I'm going to show you some faces behind the eyes here. You've got King Taufa Hautopupa. He is the last king who, who reigned for 41 years in the islands until 10th September 2006, which was two months before the riot. He was a very respected monarch, um, but the later years of his reign were characterized by political stagnation and a lot of political mischief, such as the underhand sale of Tongan passports to dubious foreigners, mostly Chinese business people, um, but also the consideration to use Tonga as nuclear waste dumps. Um, he was succeeded by his son, King George Tupou V. He was a more extravagant and unapproachable person, not very much liked by his people, um, but he was just as assistant as his father in pushing forward political reforms. What is more, he was also the chairman of the Shoreline Group, uh, which is the company um, responsible in monopoly for the transmission of power um, and also for telecommunications. A third person uh, to look at would be Feletti Sevele. He is an economic geographer and businessman by profession and was the third commoner or non-noble ever to be appointed prime minister in March 2006. He at the same time also owned some of the most successful businesses in the Tongan capital, Nukoralofa. We're going to see more of that later. And as the fourth, we've got Akilisi Bohiva. He's a long-standing people's representative and the most prominent face of the so-called pro-democracy movement. Um, that's an informal party that developed in the 1980s and 90s to address irregularities um, and abuses in Tongan governments. You remember the passport sale I mentioned earlier? Um, and to call for political reforms, such as a majority of parliament to be elected by the people directly. <laughs> I'm going to show you three sequences of video footage. Um, they show the events from a somewhat neutral perspective. Neutral in, sets, in that sense that it was not taped by, by the writers, nor by the government, but by a pair of young tourists who simply happened to be there in town in that day. Um, I will start with the first sequence, the gathering of approximately two to 3,000 people of the so-called pro-democracy movement in the Tongan capital, Nukoilofa. 
The people were called in by the people's representatives to, to, put, to support their claims that the majority of population in Tonga was standing behind their claims and proposals for constitutional change. The people should witness themselves. The government did not respond reasonably to any kind of request for reform as it has been in the past three decades. Um, at this point, the Speaker of Parliament had already postponed the year's final meeting of the House to the afternoon of the day and the cabinet and the representatives were meeting behind the scenes. At this point of time, uh, the first youth broke off from the meeting on that square there um, and took to the streets, which we're going to see. <laughs>
at the end of the day, uh, you had 70 to 80% of the central business district of Nuka Alofa um, destroyed through looting and or burning. Their owners ruined. Eight people perished, most likely looters who were trapped in a burning building. Nearly 700 people were arrested in connection to the riots, which is almost 1% of the resident population of that island. And several prominent pro-democracy activists and five lawmakers alleged to have instigated the riots were charged with sedition. On the day after the riots, the prime minister put in place a state of emergency to restrict access to, to the central business district and to prevent political gatherings. This was secured by military troops from New Zealand and Australia who were requested by the government of Tonga to restore law and order. The state of emergency was kept in place for parts of the town for more than four years until January 2011. Um, still, that riot remained a singular event. On the outside, the situation calmed down uh, rather quickly, with no further violence until today. Um, but what is more than just the loss of lives and the high proportion of the commercial backbone of the country to be ruined, was the state of the country and the society left behind. Um, but before summing that up later on, I would just like uh, to have a look at the events from a different angle. Uh, on this map you can see uh, a section of the town on the map. Uh, you see the town is located at the sea in the north and there's a lagoon to the south. Um, um, in this area, the most prominent locations on the coast, there are the government buildings, there's also the royal uh, palace. Um, the town has about 35,000 people. It's a nice but moderately exciting. Um, and the central business district where most of the riot happened was there. Um, This was the Pangai Sea, what we, we saw in the first sequence. Um, that's the place where the people of the pro-democracy movement gathered, gathered on the day and also on other days. Um, and from there, they went south along the main street of the central business district to the south. The first buildings that were attacked were closely connected to the prime minister, which is the prime minister's office, which is located right here. Um, and the supermarket owned by the Prime Minister, which is located right here. Um, from there it went to the businesses in this area that were owned by Chinese and Indian inhabitants of Tonga, um, and to the facilities that were owned by that shoreline group, you, you remember that, that company, uh, power company uh, chaired by the, by the now king. Um, but still, once again, here you can see the buildings that were completely destroyed, that were burned down to the ground. And what you can see that there, um, that is a clear area where that happened. And there are somewhat clear edges where that happened. Um, it, it feels a, a bit like, like, these, like the writers were still somewhat cautious about what they destroyed. They didn't, uh, they didn't attack any of the 
government buildings themselves, nor any of the royal estates in this area. Um, so it was all that was somewhat foreign to Tonga, like modern business or foreign properties. Mm. Some commentators place the Tongan riot in a line with the wider surge of class struggle in the South Pacific. Even though they exhibit some common characteristics, I would oppose this view from the very characteristic of the riot as a reaction to very specifically Tongan problems, the political and social constellation of that time. It was an almost purely Tongan event. Uh, all the active parties, the political elite, um, the pro-democracy movement and the looters all were Tongans. Um, I know the distinction is very rough, but there are two parties in the game, um, which are called the pro-democracy movement and the supporters of government, um, who are both trying to mold some form of modernity while trying to prevent the decay of other traditional values. The pro-democracy campaigners had the goal to push forward uh, political democratic reform and accountability. At the same time, the campaigners um, blamed the decay uh, in the political culture and personal character of the national leaders. The other party, the more conservative and government-friendly, um, is promoting a somewhat neoliberal economic agenda in the country while retaining the social status quo, a very conservative agenda when it comes to social and political structures. What is common in reaction to the riots um, is the mutual accusation of decadent behavior on both sides, with the terms shame and disgrace commonly used on both sides of the spectrum. There was a debate afterwards if the riots were political. Um, after what can be seen in the power constellation and the course of events, they were, even though other influences like alcohol and creed mingled in and led to the escalation. Um, there's a wide spectrum of opinions who is to be held responsible for the riot. Um, this tech cloud is certainly incomplete because you get 10 opinions from 10, ten people. Um, but it shows the wide spectrum of, of accusations and blames. Some say the, uh, the democracy supporters, some say the prime minister, some say the Chinese business people um, were part of the reason. Maybe it's part of all. Um, in the end, what can be heard and read in the majority of reactions to the riot, those I remember from personal talks and those that can be found in the media, is a mere bewilderment or consternation on how an event like that could happen in the friendly islands, that peaceful Tonga. Uh, please consider that Tongans enjoyed roughly 150 years of, of uh, without wars, without overtly, let alone public discontent with the political situation. Um, and the constitution of 1875 being one of the longest running constitutions in modern history. Um, someone said that the 16th of November 2006 was the day Tonga lost its innocence. In a way that describes it very well, 
It was the day when a carefully cultivated national and cultural self-conception collapsed. But there are also metaphorical flowers um, between the ruins. In April 2010, finally, a parliament was elected with a majority of the, of the representatives to be elected directly uh, by the people. So let's hope that the riot will continue to be a singular, singular event in Tongan history. So far. He's always seen as Tongan. Yes. Uh, is there a call? I mean, in many island societies, in colonial and post-colonial island societies, especially those in Europe with colonial power, mm -hmm. there's a, a correlation, if you will, a hierarchy of colour and class, or ethnicity and class. Mm -hmm. So is, is there a notion that if you maybe have European background mm -hmm. and to be of a higher class within Tonga, was that um, not really the case? That's not really the case. Um, Tonga did not have a lot of foreign influence. It was only a protectorate of Britain for a few years. It has always been somewhat independent. And the political class, the, the country always governed itself. So the hierarchy is really within the traditional hierarchy. You've got the king, you've got the nobles, and you've got um, 100,000 commoners. So, and it's one of the most homogeneous countries in the world, actually, with more than 97% being indigenous Tongans. But it's interesting because through the passport sale I mentioned, there were a lot of Chinese business people coming in. And, and this, so it's the first time for Tongans to be really confronted um, with people from other countries coming in um, and taking over a certain part of public life, more than the Europeans did, because that was a longer period and um, less intensive. Um, so this was, uh, that sale of passports was actually one of the big issues in the Tongan politics there, because it disturbed um, uh, the homogeneity of the country. Anything else? Um, most of the people are still um, are working on subsistence. Um, only a very few people um, are working in, in production and many people in services. Um, an important influence for the, for the riots was also the high youth unemployment because of the few economic opportunities in, in Tonga. 
Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm sure Neil Ferguson wasn't thinking of Tonga when he wrote his book of degeneration, and neither is Edmund Burke thinking of Tonga so the collapse of social contracts. But in some ways, you, you have a microcosm of, of an interesting and probably much more significant and wider issues. So thank you very much indeed, uh, Martin. Uh, next uh, speaker is. Uh, um, just while he set you up, is uh, Robert Van der Blank, or can I say Bob Van der Blank? Yes, Bob, okay. okay, good. Uh, Bob's the director of the uh, Oxford University uh, Language Learning Centre. Um, language sorry, Language Centre, sorry, I, I, I'm getting live. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, director of the, uh, the Oxford University Language Centre. Um, he has an interest in the, lear in the learning process, but also the process of attrition within languages. And he wrote a book. Also has an interest in how <laughs> in, um, in various, shall we say, uh, discursive or uh, uh, alternative ways. And he wrote a book in 2007, and I'm going to have to try and guess and remember the title. It was along the lines of um, "Uglier than a monkey's armpit." Indeed, right? yes. Right. Translation <laughs> from the Spanish. Okay. Yes. It's a series of uh, international insults. <laughs> So, um, a bestseller. A bestseller. Available in paperback as well as hardback. We're here today, not to insult you, but to talk about lifelong learning um, and unlearning, exploring the process of decay and loss. So, Thanks very much indeed. Um, I, I have a, a slide presentation, quite a lot of slides, um, and I can give you those at the end, but for the moment I'm going to run through these slides at quite a, a pace. Um, I became very interested in, um, in language decay, as it were, um, because I, I teach language learning, applied linguistics, in the Department of Education. Uh, and everyone has a story to tell, not so much about language learning, but about how they've forgotten their French, or their German, or something, and how they used to be brilliant, but now it's all gone. Everyone has a story to tell, and I became fascinated uh, with this. And uh, we even run this uh, website called LARA, Language Attrition Research Archive, uh, from uh, Kellogg and the, the Language Centre, uh, which has hundreds and hundreds of references on it, and you've got a few on the select bibliography uh, this evening. Um, is that the right way? No? There we go. Anyway, in, in the abstract, I mention um, these, these two uh, people, um, and they're from a book by Monica Schmidt called Language Attrition, published in 2011, this wonderful book, absolutely best book that I read that year. Um, and the first part is like a detective story about Albert and Gertrude, uh, two um, uh, people who left Germany in the 1930s when they were 13, both of them were 13, both Jewish, and then they were interviewed about 60 years later as part of an oral history. And Monica Schmidt was one of the transcribers doing a doctorate at the time, and she became absolutely fascinated uh, when she was transcribing. And as I say, she then embarked on this detective story to find out why Albert had retained very fluent, very accurate German, whereas Gertrude had lost most of it. So my questions to you, which I'll come back to at the end, why are there such large differences in their retention, do you think? And what has caused the greater attrition of the mother tongue in the one case rather than the other? So they both left Germany in the 30s, both aged 18, okay? Both settled in English-speaking countries. So, um, just to give a little background to the notion of language attrition, which is what we call the, the, the general field of uh, losing a language, language decay, whether it's first or second language or foreign languages. Four types, 
there's the loss of the first language in the first language environment, so dialect loss, such as the Doric in Aberdeenshire, where it used to be much more widespread, uh, but of course has suffered loss, but it's now regenerating, in fact, um, and people are very proud of it, loss of first language in a second language community, so uh, migrant workers who start losing their, their mother tongues, um, very, very common indeed. Uh, we see it with Oxford students, of course, who've been here for several years doing a doctorate. Every time they phone home, their mums say, what's the matter with you? Because their language is becoming less fluent, less accurate. Uh, there's the loss of the second language in a first language uh, environment, so foreign language loss, okay, that sort of thing, uh, very common, and the loss of second language in a second language environment, so the second language loss by aging migrants. They often revert <coughs> back in places like Australia. As they get old, there may be some dementia, they often revert back to their mother tongue. Oh, where did that go? Okay, the important thing to remember is that as one language is forgotten, another one is replacing it. In other words, there's a functional aspect. It's not that one totally disappears, its functions tend to be taken over. And as I've said, language attrition is the, the general term we use, rather than language loss. Language loss is often referred to um, as being applied to whole communities, okay, where, where for example, um, in, in Wales in the 19th century and the 20th century, there was a huge amount of language loss as English took over, as well English tended to take over. Language shift is much more of a sociolinguistic discipline, a, a, a tradition where the focus is on groups of, of, of speakers, so you'd identify a particular group in somewhere like, like Finland, for example, the Swedes on the coast and the influences of, of Finnish on those. And then language regression, you'll often hear the term regression, but we tend to use it for pathological conditions such as aphasia these days, rather than just um, language attrition, losing your foreign language skills. What are we interested in? Well, we're interested in what's, what's being lost, whether it's the grammar or the vocabulary, if you're uh, a linguist, how it happens, so the psychology of uh, language loss, language attrition for psycholinguists, and why it happens as well. Sociolinguists, sociologists, and anthropologists are interested in that. Some of the variables which may predict uh, the degree of att uh, attrition or retention, um, I've underlined uh, four of these, because I'm going to focus a little on these, uh, because there are lots of others, as you can see. I'm going to focus on age, motivation, and attitude, and proficiency level, because these keep coming up in, in the research on this. First of all, age. Um, the conclusions of a lot of studies um, are that the younger the child, the more rapid the pace of attrition. And indeed, the research on children who've been adopted by American <coughs> couples from Russia um, shows that in the space of six months, if they're quite young, there may be no trace of Russian left in the brain. Okay? It will have been completely replaced by English, in fact. They've done scans of uh, adopted children, and that's what they found. Okay? Also, uh, the age factor, the younger sibling tends to lose language skills more rapidly than the older one as well. 
Uh, and a lot of research has been done on, in Israel uh, on this, in particular by this researcher, Elite Olstein, and she has kept finding that um, there is an age factor. The younger the sibling, the quicker the loss, and more that's lost as well. Okay. Also in Japan, Japan is a very rich area for language nutrition studies these days for a very simple reason. Lots of Japanese families go off to places like um, the northeast of England, to Sunderland, and to Swindon to work for Honda or Nissan, and they stay there for years. So the children are educated locally, they go back to Japan, and they measure how quickly the language skills suffer attrition. They continue going to Saturday schools, but over the years, their language skills in English were native speaker-like. They suffer attrition over the years. Okay, So Japan is very rich indeed. In contrast, adults tend to retain their skills for much longer than children. Okay, Adults seem to have an advantage. Let's look at some key theories. Um, so we can consider the research that's been done, but in terms of some key theories. Um, first of all, the inverse hypothesis, which says that the higher the level of proficiency you reach, the more likely you are to retain the language. Quite commonsensical, really, isn't it? Okay. It offers a much better long-term immunity. The regression hypothesis says last in, first out. Okay. So what you learned last, you're likely to lose uh, more quickly as well. One of my favorites is the, the retrieval failure hypothesis, that material is still there, you just can't get it. In other words, that French that you learned 20 years ago so well, it somehow hasn't got lost, right? It's just difficult to get it back, okay? There is hope for us, right? There is hope. The inverse hypothesis and proficiency level. Okay, as I said, this is the higher degree of attainment, the lower the degree of attrition. Um, and it says there's a sort of inverse relationship between how good you are in the language and how much you, you lose and how quickly you lose it. Um, a very well-known researcher in the field called Lelia Murtaugh, who's at University College Dublin, she did her doctorate in this field on Irish. Okay, Irish as a second language and Irish as a native language. And that's exactly what she found, that the initial level of, of uh, proficiency in Irish was a predictor of how well you, you hung on to it, let's say. Um, the most famous study, though, is certainly the one by Harry Barrick some time ago, okay, in 1984, when he looked at how well people had retained Spanish. And he, did, he looked at whether people had retained it for five years, 15, 20, 30 years. And he found quite remarkably that some people had retained high levels of Spanish vocabulary for decades, although they hadn't actually used it. Okay? The crucial time was the first five years. You tended to lose a certain amount in the first five years, and then you retained it. Okay? So there'd be a dropping off, and then a sort of plateau effect. Uh, and he used the term permastore to refer to it. So it's sort of frozen, okay? It's frozen. Um, straight after, someone said, I disagree with you. I disagree with you. 
Harry, I don't think you've got the right idea. I'm going to take a psychological perspective. I don't think there's a permastore. I think people are creating uh, schemata. Okay, they're thinking of vocabulary in schematic terms, right? And furthermore, I think there's a critical threshold. Once people have um, taken on vocabulary at a certain level, and they pass this critical threshold, they're going to hang on to it, okay? So you have the notion of schemata and the notion of a critical threshold, okay? Um, Lynn Hansen, again, a very prominent researcher in this field, she reckoned that you needed three years, okay? Those who've been in Japan for three years, missionaries hung on to their Japanese much better than, than those who uh, were only there for two years, decades after leaving. Right, okay? Um, my own particular interest in this field is in attitudes and motivation, and we have a study at the Language Center that's been running now for about, fifth, uh, about 14, 15 years, called the Lambda Project, where we investigate uh, how well people have maintained their language skills and how we can help them either to get them back or maintain them. Uh, and we use the notion of motivational space dealing with three types of motivation, the instrumental, the integrative, and the intrinsic. Uh, and what we have found is that the strongest motivator for maintaining language skills, for retaining them, is in fact intrinsic, okay? It's not the pressure of exams, or the tutorial, or things like that. It's not how much you want to be part of a foreign language community. It's much closer to home. It's whether your desire to retain a language is, as I say, up close and personal. And if possible, use it in the next month, okay? It's like that. It's oddly enough, um, people tend to have thought that it's integrative that's more important. But in fact, we have found, and this is supported by research elsewhere now, that it's the intrinsic motivation, the up close and personal motivation, that's the, the strongest one. Um, a few uh, uh, slides on processes. Um, this is uh, the regression hypothesis, the last in, first out one. As so many of you will uh, have experienced yourselves, what tends to go is the, uh, the speaking and writing skills. You can continue reading in a foreign language, um, but uh, actually writing in that foreign language is incredibly difficult, okay? You just can't write accurately, okay? What's been found that it's very difficult to track, very difficult indeed to track the, uh, the, the intralinguistic level, whether it's the morphology or the syntax or the lexicon, the vocabulary that's going, okay? Um, again, these Israeli researchers, they looked at children who had spent time in English-speaking countries. You were going to get some strong effect on the grammar, okay, on the grammar. And also that lower-level learners, they had very unstable grammars, and they lost their English quite quickly as Hebrew replaced it. Again, you've got this replacing, okay, this replacing of the functions. But the vocabulary was, the vocabulary was much less vulnerable to attrition. Uh, as I said, my favorite theory is this one, that the information processing, uh, it's the information processing, and the language is still intact somewhere in the brain, you just can't bring it to the front, okay? You just, there's a failure of processing. 
Okay? And we see this in, as I say, native speakers who've been in a country, another country for some time, and then when they phone home, there are pauses, there are hesitations. They can't get the words out fast enough. Okay? You, you're probably familiar with, with that sort of situation. Some lovely research by Graham Port, uh, which is on your list, of native speaker English teachers in Spain who end up speaking this strange hybrid of sort of Spanglish, in fact, as they start losing their native speaker skills. And in a country like Denmark, native speaker language posts in English uh, are only for six years, because after six years, you're, you, are no lo you no longer have that native speaker sharpness. You're already decaying, okay? Your native speaker skills are decaying after six years. Um, just rush on, otherwise I won't have time. Literacy as a variable. Again, work by Lynn Hansen. Obviously, we all think quite intuitively that if someone can learn to read and write in a foreign language, it's going to provide some sort of anchor. And there is research evidence to show that this is the case. Okay, this is true. And uh, the, um, the research in Ireland by Lelia Murtagh, it confirmed it as well. Uh, literacy was one of the predictors of the retention of Irish. Um, I think this is the, the last of the theories. This is the most recent one. It's called the savings paradigm. And um, it's, again, the notion that information once learnt is not lost, but has become inaccessible through lack of use. But it is retrievable with the right cues. Okay? Uh, and the key researcher in this area is called Kees de Bot in, in the Netherlands. And he found that even after 30 years of non-use, the two German subjects that they tested still had Dutch back, back there. Okay? They still had Dutch back there. Now, in language teaching terms, this is a nightmare because it's the typical intermediate French class at the language center where you've got half the class coming up from beginners and half the class who've come down. Their language has been sort of attrited over the years. So after about a month, what you get, you get a bounce. All of a sudden, those who have been on the way down will start going up at a much faster rate than those who have come from beginners. Because in the, the savings approach, their old French is being reactivated. So you can imagine the terrible situation for the teacher faced with that, that all of a sudden you've got this ever-increasing gap between the ability of, of the students, those who are just coming up from beginners, and those who can suddenly remember their advanced level French skills. Okay, that's what happens when you uh, think about it in terms of the savings approach. Okay? Um, this is about memory, it's quite obvious. For recall, you need a very high level of activation, whereas for recognition, a much lower level is needed. Again, it, um, it's, it's um, really quite common sense. One of the most recent articles, a very interesting one, 2012, again involving Kestabot, relearning in the, in the elderly. Again, they found that elderly people in their 70s and 80s could remember, they could recall French they'd 
learnt as teenagers and haven't used since, okay, under this sort of approach. Sadly enough, they found that those in their 20s who'd learned in newfangled communicative methods had weaker vocabulary. Right. Okay. So, this takes us quite nicely onto the processing failure hypothesis, that at a, a, a certain age, people can appear to have lost their language. Again, the, the Japanese returnees are, are the main area of study. And what they have found is that if children go back and forth between different countries, they can appear to lose the language they have. So you take a seven-year-old Japanese, that child goes off to spend two months in the United States. At the end of two months, the child appears to have lost all their Japanese. Okay. When they're tested, they appear to have no Japanese. They come back to Japan, and it all comes back. Okay. It isn't that the linguistic information has been lost, but according to Yukawa, uh, Emiko um, Yukawa, there's a processing failure. Okay? Again, the, the ability to bring it from the back to the front and use it has been hampered, especially um, among uh, children of this age. Okay? But there are individual variations. Right. Okay? And this can explain the, the language loss. Uh, but of course, uh, over time, the linguistic information can become completely inaccessible, okay? Unless you join a French intermediate class, something like that, and then maybe it'll come back. Uh, my last slide uh, is about Lelia Murtag uh, and her findings. There were individual social and affective uh, factors such as parental encouragement and so on, the um, opportunities to use Irish, uh, and so on, those sorts of individual social and affective factors, all right? So that's been a very rushed run through all the theories of, um, uh, of language attrition, and we go back to Gertrude and Albert. So, in fact, instead of you questioning me, I'm going to ask you, so why the difference between Gertrude and Albert? What do you think? Yes. Was there any difference in the trauma associated with their mood. I, I say this because I was this, I went to a lecture by um, somebody who came over on the public transport last night, mm -hmm. and he said he lost his journey within weeks ah. at the age of seven, and was always bottom of the class when he was older. And I wondered whether it was ah. because it was you know, it's like, like like my loss of German when <laughs> when I was twenty, and I gave it up after part one at uh, the University of Kent, and it disappeared overnight. And it only came back when I went to Vienna 20 years later, but it came back overnight as well. I got over my trauma. It's a very good point. Yes, okay. Would you like to say a bit more, first of all? Um, no, it, it's, it's just, um, it only, I only heard him talk last night, and I sort of only just... You need to say a bit about more about it, though. Well, um, this man is in his 80s, and he came over... Czechoslovakian German, yeah. and his parents um, were, Jew were Jewish, and his parents sent him out mm. um, on the public transport in 1939. He was one of the last children right. to come out. Mm. Uh, he and his brother were then right. went to separate foster families. So, how would that affect Gertrude and Albert? Well, if they, if one of them came out with their parents, and 
of the experience. Very close indeed. Any, Is any? It exposure. Well, for example, me. Um, I work for an international company, and I look after the legal matters of five, six countries. So, I yes, I, I speak five languages. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just speak, but master fluently, and and. Um, In their case, it wasn't. I think if they, well. Uh, but in their case, it wasn't. You see. It, it was exposure. They, no. It was it's not exposure. You 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 have to think more like those terms, more like the trauma terms. Any. This, it wasn't use. It's not exposure or use. The the or the the, the factor, perhaps because, per, for example, when I was a little child, when I was in my teen, yeah, when I was a baby, I learned Spanish from my grandfather. Mm. At that time, he uh, was these these were native speakers. Remember, these are thirteen-year-old native speakers. Both left in the nineteen thirties, but ended up with totally different. But how were you, attention. sir? How were you? Oh, 13 year old native speakers living in Dusseldorf. They've been to school until they were 13 in, in, uh, in Germany. They had German speaking parents. They lived and spoke German. Yes, they were fully literate in German. My grandfather, my grandfather is not from Chinese. My grandfather is a mix of Spanish and French. When I was a baby, he looked after me. So my first language was not actually Cantonese. My first language, the first language that I In this case, we assume. I mean, we have to take Monica Schmidt's word for it. They were, <laughs> they were, they were native speaker Germans when they left Germany in the 1930s. Yeah. You were talking about the motion, you know, with all the more translated to their own point. What happened with them? You know, all the emotion. Okay. Yes. So how close do you feel? So simple, you you throw the stones at me. The war. Almost. Nineteen thirties. What was going on in the nineteen thirties? 
Well, more than that in Germany. National Socialism. Yes, yes. Well, the crucial factor at the end was one left in 1933 and the other left in 1938. One left just after the Nazi party had taken over, Albert, so still felt quite positive about German, rather alienated in England. What's this strange place where I'm treated oddly? Gertrude left after Kristallnacht, the attack on all the Jewish businesses when all the anti-Jewish laws were passed. As you say, she was totally traumatized when she left Germany. And the alienation was towards Germany and German. Okay, so it, it created this block. It's exactly that. But the crucial difference was when they left. The five-year separation. They didn't leave at the same time. I didn't tell you that. Yeah. But nor does Monica Schmidt in her book. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks so much indeed. We have a few questions there. So if you don't mind, we'll go straight over the car, right? Yes. And that will still give us time uh, for some questions at the end. So, oh, sorry. Um, close that. So Cara is a university lecturer in English literature and creative writing. Um, is formerly a lecturer at St Peter's College, um, and we are very privileged today because we had the author of the best book in 2007, Bob, uh, here for the uh, the the, the, um, the uh, insulting book, as you say, or the book of insults. We've heard Monica um, Monica Schmidt did the best book of 2011. And Tara's forthcoming book, looking at the links between American and Irish culture, is coming out with, Man uh, with Manchester University Press in the summer. So that will be the book of 2013. Oh, yeah. Um, so Tara's going to be talking a bit uh, about that today. I'm yes. sure there's a very strong link. Um, and she'll be talking to the title of Assuaging the Swelling. That's a horrible title. How American Modernists Looked to Ireland to Cure Their Cultural Malaise. And we had Yeats' quote in the start we just did. for you. So I hope you... And actually, David's, um, I, I David's reading of that poem was, uh, was correct, I think. So I'm going to come at a slightly different angle to um, this idea of decay, because I want to think about the opposite of decay, which is really something which my book is preoccupied with, which is enchantment, and um, how a perceived decaying of one's culture can lead to a search in another culture for a cure or a process of healing. Um, and I'm also interested in thinking about how such a search comes about, the processes behind this search, and the authenticity of this discovery, or even perhaps a rediscovery of something as well. Um, so questions that have come up already a bit today, I think. So the modernist poet... Marianne Moore had been editor of the New York-based periodical The Dial for over two years, when in a comment of March 1928, she discussed the visit to the city of the Irish spiritualist critic and poet A.E., also known as George Russell. He had come to the U.S. to raise money for his journal The Irish Statesman, and Moore had attended the first of his public lectures. And here she describes his visit in detail. She says... A.E. is here and having held out a welcome to him for many years. It is not likely that, as the newspapers suggest, we shall confuse his identity with that of George W. Erskine Russell or Bertrand Russell or of another. At first, not quite hearing him, since our fellow townsmen are, under excitement, spectators rather than audience, but entirely believing him, we can accept his implication that poetry is invariably at the core of reanimation in Ireland. 
Later in the same comment, Moore discloses her particular susceptibility to Irish writing, one that she assumes is shared by readers of the magazine. So she puts it, quote, susceptible to Irish magic in its various strengths. We cannot say we are not enchanted with disenchantment in Sean O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars, that we are indifferent to certain of James Joyce's lyrics, quote, carved from the air and coloured with the air, as Mr Russell denotes them, or to George Moore's novel Hail and Farewell. And here, by describing a range of Irish writing and by employing an editorial we, Moore displays her expectation that readers of the dial, who are unlikely to confuse the identity of A.E. with other famous Russells, will also be aware of recent developments in Irish literature. So this association between Irish literature and magic reveals Moore's enchantment with Ireland's writing and its writers, inspired by the kind of self-belief that A.E. embodies through his implication that poetry is at the core of reanimation in Ireland. Beyond this, moreover, is the implication that Irish poetry can provide some sort of cure for what Moore terms later in the same comment, the restiveness of American cultural life. She says here, the venerable bead finds that when some persons have been bitten by serpents, the scrapings of leaves of books that were brought out of Ireland, being put into the water and given them to drink, have immediately expelled the spreading poison and assuaged the swelling. And we are grateful that there should have been administered to our restiveness the poems and thoughts which Mr Russell has brought us. I think this is interesting because she's talking about the restiveness of American cultural life here. So she says, just as poetry can encourage reanimation in Ireland through its power to enchant, so too might it do the same in America. So during the first half of the 20th century and into the second, American culture was suffering from a crisis of faith. In his essay, The Literary Life, published in Howard E. Stern's Civilization and the United States in 1922, the contentious but influential critic Van Wyck Brooks denounced, quote, the singular impotence of the creative spirit of American writing and decried the chronic state of our literature. Meanwhile, slightly later in an essay, Paradox and Dream, in his America and Americans collection, the novelist and part-time social commentator John Steinbeck noted that, quote, we are a restless, a dissatisfied, a searching people. So what were they searching for? Why not return to English culture, as had been so popular really in the 19th century in particular in America. Well, at this time, American writers had begun to question the usefulness of English culture to their own work. Critic Paul Giles elaborates on this issue, arguing that, quote, one of the most common impulses of American modernism involved rejecting the legacy of English culture as an inappropriate model for the representation of a brazenly new American world. And T.S. Eliot displayed a similarly dismissive attitude toward English literature in his essay, The Three Provincialities, from 1922. It's subject to the interrelation between English, American, and Irish literatures. In one famous passage, as here on the PowerPoint, Eliot claimed that there had been, quote, a complete collapse of literary effort in England. And as late as 1949, the poet and critic Wallace Stevens was writing in a letter to Thomas McGreevy that a good many of us are at the moment very much bored with Ireland's neighbour. The truth is that the British flatter themselves at the expense of the world, always have and always will. And here obviously he sets up a counterpoint between Ireland and England as cultural um, sources for his American expression. 
But Ireland, on the other hand, could provide a new and exciting locus of inspiration at exactly the time when American and British cultures were falling out of favour. So in his essay, The Three Provincialities, of the three literatures discussed by Eliot, which are American, British and Irish, he presents Irish literature as the most self-assured. Although he's dismissive of the nationalising tendencies of Irish writers, he does credit them with a sense of purpose at a time when other literatures appear to be falling apart. Referring to authors like James Stevens, who advocated a return to the Irish language in their writing, Eliot comments that, quote, the Irish radicals are commendable insofar as they mark a necessity for a choice between the traditions of a universal language and the traditions of a nation or race. Although Eliot views this choice as ultimately self-destructive, since universality should be the only aim of literature, according to him, he cannot help but admire the Irish writer's self-belief. So for the rest of the talk, I'm going to focus on a famous passage from the Northern Irish poet Louis MacNeese's poem, Autumn Journal, from 1938-9, to try and outline some of the reasons why American modernists turned to Ireland to try to help cure their cultural malaise. Though it was written as a sardonic and sometimes savage response to Ireland's growing isolationism during the lead-up to World War II, it is actually a pertinent summary of the turn to Ireland within Irish and American cultural circles during a similar period of transatlantic cultural searching. He says, why do we like being Irish? Partly because it gives us a hold on the sentimental English as members of a world that never was, baptised with fairy water and partly because Ireland is small enough to be still thought of with a family feeling, and because the waves are rough that splits her from a more commercial culture, and because one feels that here at least one can do local work, which is not at the world's mercy, and on this tiny stage with luck, a man might see the end of one particular action. It is self-deception, of course. There is no immunity on this island either. So MacNeese's summative comment at the end here on Ireland's self-deception, points beyond those Irish who are complicit in the packaging of Irish culture as an historical or even mythological artefact to those outside Ireland who choose to collude in the myth of Ireland's separation from the rest of the world. At the same time, however, Irish culture as an export had arguably never been more popular. So the cultural consequences of the Celtic revival, as instigated by W.B. Yeats, Lady Gregory, J.M. Singh and Douglas Hyde around the turn of the 20th century, coupled with the growth of Irish nationalism and the establishment of home rule in the Free State in 1922, had led to a surge of interest in Ireland throughout Europe and America. American writers and thinkers had been particularly inspired by Ireland's self-determination, which recalled the parallel struggles for independence of the two nations. As critic Fiona Green puts it, quote, in the early 20th century, as in the 18th, the Irish nationalist cause was compatible with the American revolutionary spirit. And here, Matt Neese theorises that the small size of Ireland can evoke a family feeling, thus extending a consideration of inheritance beyond genealogical lines and towards the significance of familiarity in shaping oneself identity. So we can find a similar idea reflected in the writings of F. Scott Fitzgerald and John Steinbeck, both of whom had maternal Irish backgrounds. For example, in John Steinbeck's early work, To a God Unknown, 1935, the desire to complete the work of the fictional father saturates every, every page, but more telling is the starring role of Steinbeck's Irish grandfather in East of Eden. That's the bit that's always cut out when they do film adaptations. 
Um, conversely, Fitzgerald's semi-autobiographical novel, This Side of Paradise, from 1922, is weighed down by the constant absence of a father, manifested in the protagonist's attempts to replace his father with the religious figure, Messenia Darcy. And this father-father contrast reveals a sense of loss and a desire for recovery related to Fitzgerald's Irish Catholic background. Reading further down the passage from McNeese, we move from a consideration of family to a description of the natural imagery traditionally associated with Irish culture. The lines, and because the, sorry, and because the waves are rough that split her from a more commercial culture, suggest sardonically that Ireland's natural characteristics provide a barrier of cultural self-protection from the outside world. Particularly telling is the association between the natural world and a pure, unsullied culture that has nothing to do with commerciality. This emphasis on nature recalls the arguments of the Celtic revivalists, which advocated an intermingling of the natural and the magical within Celtic culture. Consider, for example, the lines from W. B. Yeats's essay on the Celtic element in literature, in which he argues that, quote, the Celtic race had a realistic naturalism, a love of nature for herself, a vivid feeling for her magic. The Celtic revivalists had even set a precedent for actively drawing inspiration from a tradition that was not, strictly speaking, their own. So the Anglo-Irish Protestant playwright J.M. Singh had travelled to the west coast of Ireland to find, quote, authentic material for his plays. And even the cynical American modernist Ezra Pound admitted to have been, quote, drunk with Celticism in the early 1900s. But the fact that the revivalists ideal, idealised Ireland of myth and legend, baptised with fairy water, as it says here, is, according to McNeese, a world that never was, does not necessarily hinder um, American writers' attraction towards it. Indeed, its unreality allows them to construct Ireland as their imagination dictates. The modernist period in America coincided with a surge of interest in the Celtic revival, thanks to the publishing efforts of Yeats's sister, Elizabeth Yeats, the Cooler Press, to the Abbey Theatre tours in the US in the 1910s, to the dissemination of writings by and on the idea of the Celt in American periodicals, and to the efforts of revivalists such as W.B. Yeats and A.E., who, as we saw as described in Moore's comment, made tours of the US in the 1920s and 30s. But of course, this idea of myth-making that permeates these lines recalls within American modernist views of Irish culture a desire to return to the land and an idealisation of rural communities. In the US, the vogue for travelogues and travel writing was only increasing, and the relative scale of the two countries, which McNeese ably demarcates here, must have held its own appeal. Accompanying this relatively new trend was the tendency for American writers to view idealised landscapes taken from their reading experiences as more inspiring than the real thing. So we get a surge of writing here about places that people haven't visited in Ireland, but that they'd like to. So Marianne Moore, for example, acknowledges this paradox of irony and imaginative potential in her 1941 poem, Spencer's Island. By describing Ireland a place she has just read about as, quote, the greenest place I've never seen, the poet speaker derives inspiration from her geographical distance from a country that exists mainly in her imagination. And also, uh, Wallace Stevens writes an entire poem about Ireland based on a postcard. 
So meanwhile, in I Go Back to Ireland, his account of a trip to Ireland made in 1952, Steinbeck acknowledges his initial, quote, powerful reluctance to see the home place, as if he knows it will not live up to his idealised view of his Irish ancestor's hometown. And then Wallace Stevens' late poems, Our Stars Come from Ireland and the Irish Cliffs of Moa, rely on a transatlantic translation of the idea of rural Ireland across the Atlantic. But as he points out in letters, they're predicated on the fact that he's never actually been there. So what these writers' responses to Ireland's landscape reveal is a process of myth-making that is generated as much by the stories told by Irish writers as by the deliberate process of self-enchantment that their American counterparts enact in order to remain attached to the green idyll of the Emerald Island. But behind MacNeese's lines, with their emphasis on the natural within Irish culture, lies a more savage reading of Ireland's desire for cultural self-protection. Linked to the potential dangers that MacNeese perceives in the packaging and commodification of Celticism is a concern about the growing culture of mistrust that is apparent within Ireland itself. So here MacNeese's description of Ireland's separation from a more commercial culture brings to mind the Irish government's increasingly xenophobic attitude towards external cultural influences, which had developed in the years following the passing of the Censorship of Publications Act in 1929. Critic Donald O'Driscoll views the passing of the Act as part of a general process of Catholicization that became the primary element in the forging of a separate identity. And as a Protestant Northern Irish writer, MacNeese would have particularly felt this desire for separation. Therefore, the concluding lines from this passage, it is self-deception, of course, there is no immunity on this island either. Note the willed self-deception of the Irish in thinking that their culture will somehow provide them with immunity from the harsh reality of an encroaching international situation, with the latter line, of course, echoing John Donne's famous maxim, no man is an island, from Meditation 17. But critic John F. Callaghan questions the tendency of modern American writers to, quote, seek mythologies of fraudulent innocence. Although this is strongly put, we might see how, for MacNeese, Irish culture as it stood in 1938-9 might have offered such a mythology. But what if we turn this on its head and we actually think about viewing this seeking of mythology as part of an ongoing search for a cure for the restiveness that Moore identifies in her comment for the dial? as surely the appeal of myth to American writers was its ability to inspire ideals of innocence in a world that contained neither of these things. Thus, it might be simplistic to merely dismiss an indulgent in myth as a preference for untruth. Moreover, as the American poet and critic Ben Howard has pointed out, Irish writers have inspired their American counterparts by modelling a search for authenticity shaped and complicated by illusions of their own making. So he says, Irish writers have endeavoured to discover the real Ireland behind the sentimental stereotypes, the warring ideologies, the outworn pieties and outright shams. But he adds that the veils of illusion have been partially the creation of Irish writers only complicates the project. Perhaps then it is actually the search for enchantment that is important, even if we know that what we discover or indeed recover is not ultimately real. And that's where I'm going to stop. Thank you. Questions? Should we just do questions to Tatara?
Can I just get some water? I'm very interested in the um, Irish-American link uh, and sort of taking it forward to more modern times, whether you thought that um, The Road is the ultimate Irish-American novel of decay. The Road? Mm. Yes. Since it's sort of about decay. Why, why, why does it have to be Irish-American? Well, because the writer has I know, but I mean, in terms <laughs> that's of... All. No just because it's a novel of decay. Well, it's an interesting question. I, I think I find it a bit, I don't know, I'm always a bit wary of kind of stamping a, a kind of Irish-American label on something just because the author is Irish-American. But I'd be interested <laughs> in your theories of no, how that No, I had none. I was interested in what, what you think. It just yeah. occurred to me as you were speaking, and the, the, the notion of decay and decadence and um, yeah. self-deception as well. And so on. That's a good point, yeah. Self is, is obviously coming through in all these presentations. Mm -hmm. um, the self being slightly different from identity. Mm. Uh, and so it's a nice apposition in a way to be able to move from Tongafer, probably we would find self being threatened, identity being threatened at the same time. Whereas in the second, perhaps we only had identity. Also, that yeah, sense because that, that Bob was yeah. when you were talking about that Irish language thing as well. That there's this whole pervasive idea in Irish studies about recovering a native language that you didn't even know you had yeah. and that you met, never even knew. Mm. So, even mm. is that actually possible? You know, is that something which so people so Joyce used to talk about not having his native language even though he didn't have a word of it? So, there's a strange kind of paradox mm. there. And Reese was always uneasy. Dividing there because because of Ireland's neutrality and the way that actually that ideal becomes disrupted more and more as we go through the 20th century. And that's Perceptions kind of become fragmented. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You, I was going to ask you where Joyce fits into this. Yeah, that's a good question. That's a long, long answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, because he's in exile, he, he's quite difficult to fit into Irish studies. Um, I, do, I do some work in my book on Fitzgerald and Joyce and the links between them and the sense of um, autonomy and the kind of relationship between the self and the nation and how Fitzger Fitzgerald uses Joyce as a model. Um, but, it, but again, it gets very complicated because of Joyce's complex attitudes towards Ireland himself. Gyre-like, I guess, yeah. the easy yeah. yeah. 
just collect, I guess, all, across all three um, talks, uh, in some ways, the notion of transnationalism in there, the transnational theory, and so, and how that applies to language, and maybe Tongan island revolts, but I mean, there's a Tongan uh, diaspora, and I, there's, there's, there clearly is a, an Irish diaspora, but in terms of uh, transnationalism and hybridity theory, I guess it's the focus on creation, it's the fusion that creates the new, and it's not so much the decay that creates the new. Um, and I just wonder, does that fit in at all? Because I, I guess I, I was thinking of the Black Atlantic, yeah. where it's looking at the, yes, the, in some ways the, the positive aspects of that uh, fusion of African and Caribbean and, say, the American, if you will, cultures through, an, through the very negative experience of slavery and colonialism. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, does that fit into any ideas of transnational and, and also in terms of language yeah. attrition and learning? Mm. Fits into the notion of multi-competence. 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 The moment you start learning another language, it affects your mother tongue or, or however other, however many languages you have. So you become multi-competent and you can't stop um, linking your your mother tongue with other languages. It's all affected. What's so that's really why I was asking Martin, you had a response to that. It's not just the competing language, but in Tonga, it's also the, um, a bit like the competing cultures when, when people are, uh, the diaspora in, in New Zealand, for example, is very strongly influencing um, Tonga and also the, the way the Tongans look at themselves, at their own culture, at their own government. So the diaspora is very very strong reason why, why actually these democratic ideas came into Tonga. Mm. I guess my, I mean, my sort of uh, interests are more in um, selection, so like almost choosing how to define yourself. So choosing whether you make that experience positive or negative and choosing how to view it in terms of kind of cultural or racial affiliations. And no so choice is without constraint. No, I know. Yeah. So it becomes very complicated on a sort of um, racial in level. Induced decay, for instance. Well, yeah, I mean... That would be very close to what you're Well, I think that's a kind of more... That was how I started out when I was writing the book, but then I, I sort of changed my mind as I went, and I thought that I think you have to think about if a process is, is inauthentic, does that make what you discover inauthentic. I'm not sure that that's correct always. Um, you see what I mean? So you can you can turn something which might be constructed or negative into something which for you is, is a positive experience, which is what I think David was talking about at the start. Maybe that's quite postmodern, but uh, that's where we're going to now. So. <laughs> Also, I mean, do you think we carry decay into death? Do you think we sort of, it was too close an equation in, in general, commonly held, that decay is equivalent to death? Of course, decay is a sort of progress. Well, I mean, because David talked about the second coming, which is 
perfect is that? I was very impressed by that. I teach that poem all the time, and no one ever reads it like that. So well done, Dave. You can be in my class. In that poem, the whole point, you know, this, this idea about uh, that Yeats talks about all the time, his his metaphors of things like terrible beauty, is not supposed to be. It's a double-sided coin, and it's even it goes back even someone like Tennyson used the word awful, meaning awe-inspiring as well as awful. So that that things that because nothing can change if nothing can be renewed, so it's not even that decay is negative. It's just part of a cycle of change. And because people like Yeats are so obsessed with poetry, well, then that generates new metaphors for poetry, which can only be a good thing. You know, it doesn't even really matter. Does that does that make sense? That it's yeah, kind of part of a kind of cycle. Yes, yes, it's so the same metaphor. Yeah. I think it's well. I, I, it was coming to the end. We've got sort of reception drinks in the common room that everyone's invited to. Um, but I think one of the things was these series that get people to take a theme and see how it impacts upon their research. So I think decay, as, as, as you as you mentioned, is, it has this almost a degenerative negative uh, component. So it's mortality, and there's some notion mm -hmm. well, actually mortality has been very positive because we're all living mortality in a in a sort of a, yeah. in a um, you know in that re reverse way, if you will. Um, but I just thank uh, all our speakers, and, and I think when we first said, "Would you like to speak about <laughs> decay?" It was like, "We don't do decay," or, or not apart from Bob, who actually instigated or, or inspired the session. Um, but uh, I want to thank very much indeed um, Bob Martin and Tara for taking uh, time out to, to, in some ways, reconfigure the research they're doing and uh, spend spend this afternoon talking through. And we have half an hour or so of reception drinks in the common room, and then there's dinner for those who've signed up in the Ackland room. So um, thank you all as well for coming along this afternoon and um, onwards to drinks. So thanks very much. Thank you so much.